Good morning, Cross Point. How are you? Can you hear me okay? Not great. Remember, if there's ever technical problems at this church, whose fault is it? Mine entirely. That's correct. There I am. Now it's in my head. Can you hear me okay? Welcome. The goofball making stuff up and messing it up right at the start of the service is your friend and servant, as they say in Mexico, Bruce Garner. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, I see some new faces in the crowd that I haven't had uh, the pleasure of meeting you folks yet. I hope to do that after the service. I just want to say uh, thank you for coming and worshiping with us. I don't know if you realize it was last week, two years ago, uh, that our church, like every church in America, from one day to the next, had to close down. And we were entirely online. And I preached the worst sermons I've preached in 30 years of preaching. Really, that's not false humility. They were, they were terrible because I'd never preached to a camera before. And it was just otherworldly and apocalyptic that two or three people were in the room, but the rest of you weren't here. And now, two years later, by the grace of God, we're, uh, I think, a stronger, healthier, better church than we were when the pandemic burst out. We went through some suffering. Some of you suffered grievous losses. Some of you are still healing from some of the things that you endured, both physically and relationally and emotionally. But Jesus proved faithful, and I'm here to tell you thank you because you proved faithful as well. If Jesus is faithful and we are disciples of Jesus, then we should be as Jesus is. So before we look into God's Word and we pray and we just worship the Lord again, as we've done here for nearly 60 years, I just want to say thank you to you and to the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord, you've been so good. Through the faithfulness of people who've been here longer than I have and people who just got here, some who arrived in the middle of all this chaos, your, your flock here has been so, so kind, so loving, so generous, so patient. My brothers and sisters here, Lord, have truly shown the fruit of the Spirit in the way they've lived their lives in unprecedented, difficult, frightening circumstances. Thank you. Thank you for teaching me who you are, not only through your word, but also by getting to see you, Jesus, in the living example of my brothers and sisters. Help me, Lord, open your word now faithfully, clearly, so that we may know who you are, and because of your identity, take stock of our own. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you're new to the church, what we generally do here is choose a book in the Bible and move straight through it. So you're going to drop in with us in the book of 1 Peter if you'll open your Bible there. We've reached 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. For those of you to whom the book may be new or you lost track over these weeks, the letter of 1 Peter is written by perhaps the most famous of all of Jesus' disciples, the volatile St. Peter called away from the nets, called away from family to serve Jesus, and did so. And Peter seems to have in the New Testament until a transition point, I'm going to show you, Peter seems to have two settings, full blast and off. You ever met anybody like that? 
It's either fifth gear, fifth gear or the keys are in the drawer and the car's not going anywhere. Those are his two movements. Peter has matured now. He's writing some 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's entirely different. And someone who often showed such concern for himself is now showing concern for the people receiving his letter, who for the most part are Gentile Christians scattered across the Roman Empire, some of them physically homeless, displaced by persecution and family troubles that came about by their faith, others certainly politically and spiritually homeless. It's a timely letter for Christians in the United States and the world over to read in 2022 in the ashes of the pandemic and all the division that it brought. Peter writes them to teach them how to suffer well. He doesn't minimize their suffering. He doesn't minimize their displacement. He just tells them how to bear up under it. And in the passage in front of us now, he's going to talk to them about their identity, which is tricky because there's nothing more vital and fundamental to who we are than our sense of identity, but it's also Some of us have discovered one of the most unstable and painful things in our experience. Few things matter more than you knowing who you are, and it's at the same time because of suffering and loss and change, both good and bad, your sense of who you are can be easily shaken. You might quickly be asking yourself from one day to the next, who am I really? We ask children, what do you want to be? when you grow up. It's interesting that we would ever choose the word be to ask children about their future. And if you ask, just try it out, ask a child, what do you want to be? They'll always talk about something not they want to be, but something they want to, what? Do. So when we lose jobs, when we're suddenly laid off, or when we retire, or when the nest is suddenly empty, or when we are either married or divorced, or when someone who has made sense of our identity and been such a part of our lives has suddenly taken from us, everything can be shaken. The military military knows as an organization how important identity is. That's why haircuts and uniforms are very important. They want you to understand not only who you are, but maybe that you don't matter quite as much as you once thought you did. My son was in a particularly tough part of his training, and he had taken, as he was instructed to do, a handbook with him, and he had written his name in the chaos to differentiate his handbook from the two or three hundred other people who were going through this same ordeal. He had written the name on his handbook, and one of the instructors said, what is this? He said, that is my name, instructor. He said, negative. Your identity has been taken from you. And he said, Roger. (laughs) Understood. No argument here. That's fine. He restored and regained his identity a few weeks later when he got out of that ordeal. Who are you? Do you know? Has it changed? Have you had to ask some of those tough questions? Have you had to, as entertainers often do, reinvent yourself? Have you tried on new hobbies, new haircuts, new friends, new pastimes, new jobs, new entertainments, hoping that it will somehow change your sense of self? 
It's identity that Peter has in mind in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's about to get down to the brass tacks of being very practical and telling them specifically how to act in their suffering, but he can't do that until he establishes and reminds them of who they actually are. You never behave better and beyond your beliefs. What you believe yourself to be, and in the case of Christians, what you know yourself to be, will always determine how you actually act. That's one reason the pandemic has been so disorienting. People we thought were trustworthy were revealed to be very untrustworthy. It just took this kind of pressure to reveal that there were actually cracks, fissures inside their character that were exposed by the trouble. Time spent understanding who you are in Christ is never wasted. I've been in a fight to remind myself who Jesus is and who Jesus made me for about 25 years because I'm just exactly as you. Someone who questions and doubts not only his behavior, but his very identity. Read with me in 1 Peter chapter 2, and this will make more sense to you as you understand Peter's message. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm reading from verse 4. Peter's talking about Jesus, and he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Have you encountered difficult language that you're already struggling to understand? Let me give you some tips for reading this passage. As we read through this passage, because we're just getting started with it, it's not very long, but we just read a few verses. Here, the word we, not me, when you read this passage. It's vitally important that you understand that this passage in most of the New Testament, in the epistles, when it speaks to Christians, is not saying you individually, it is saying you in the plural. And English has the unfortunate limitation, when I say you, you're not entirely sure whether I mean you right here, this one person in front of me, or the people that you're with, all of you. Southerners have tried to fix this for us, but we will not cooperate. I use it sometimes, and people make fun of me here in California. Y'all means the group. So when you read the New Testament, remember in some sense it's a southern document, and it's saying y'all, not you. As you keep reading, look carefully at the word pictures. This passage is filled with word pictures. Living stones. Houses. When you see an image in the New Testament, understand it's inviting you into one of the most learning experience, one of the most powerful learning experiences human beings can enjoy, which is to visualize something and to understand through imagery a truth that is quite real and practical in the world. And thirdly, a third tip, pay attention to the references from the Old Testament. There are many here. They're drawn from Isaiah and they're drawn from Psalms written at least 700 years before Jesus and Peter both lived. And now Peter, centuries later, is talking to Gentile Christians who did not grow up with the Old Testament. 
who perhaps may have attended synagogue in these days, hearing the New Testament read in their language, but even there, it would have been a novelty. They would have been a little bit of outsiders. They would have been what the New Testament calls proselytes. Jewish people in a Jewish synagogue hearing the Hebrew Scriptures read aloud to them that were not written to them, and they could not begin to understand until Peter explains it to them just how fully they were included with God's promise. Let's read it again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, as you come to Him, to Jesus. Jesus is a living stone. That's interesting. He was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, Jesus is chosen and precious. That's Jesus. Verse 5, you yourselves like living stones. See the commonality there? Jesus is a living stone rejected by men, and Peter says, so are you. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. It got really Jewish all of a sudden, didn't it? There's a Hebrew flavor here, unapologetically, clearly, for God's reasons. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, so that you collectively could offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. These scattered, persecuted, perhaps illiterate people are now priests unto God. They can approach God and know that they are accepted. They can worship God and know that, know that He cherishes it. And all of this was planned in advance, verse 6. For as it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am lying in Zion, in Jerusalem. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, Chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Understand the word image. Who's that verse talking about? Jesus. And Jesus is called a particular kind of stone. What kind of stone is he? The cornerstone, which in ancient architecture was the primary bearer of the weight of the building, oriented the entire structure and set the level for the whole building. It's not the ornamental cornerstone that we put on buildings. That's plaster. That can be chipped off and destroyed. The cornerstone that Peter is referring to is an enormous piece of solid rock that will hold the whole building. And if the stone isn't secure, if the stone wasn't chosen and quarried well, the whole building is in danger and the builders may not yet know it. As it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, Chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Jesus will not disappoint you. You may not understand Him. You may question Him. You may even be angry with Him as you follow Him. But Jesus will not ultimately fail anyone who puts their trust in Him. On the other side of this life, the eternal life that Jesus gives to people who trust Him, and that eternal life begins the moment they put their faith in Jesus, the eternal life begins now and continues forever. That source of life, that life giver will not put you to shame. As it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. 
But for those who do not believe, he's quoting the Bible again, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And, quoting the Old Testament again, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were, what's it say? Destined to do. God is not surprised by rejection. Both belief in Jesus and rejection of Jesus were prophesied, were destined. God is in charge of everything. He is not troubled. Peter's big point is this. Jesus is the living cornerstone and he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Everything in the Old Testament that seems such a closed book to many Christians points forward to Jesus. The prophecies... The promises, the word pictures, the symbology, it all points forward to Jesus. He is, in some sense, on every page. It is a book about him. After his resurrection in Luke 24, he told astonished disciples and explained to them everything written in the scriptures concerning, Luke says, concerning Jesus himself. Jesus Jesus isn't a P.S., and oh, by the way, he's not a contingency plan. He always has been the living cornerstone that would orient the life of God's people, rest securely beneath them, and keep them safe in the storm of impending death. And Jesus knew it. If you look on your outline, listen to Jesus take some of these same scriptures and apply them to himself. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits and the one who falls on this stone will be, what's it say? Broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him. Whoa. The same Jesus that saves, judges. The word of salvation that he speaks to the whole world becomes to some a word of judgment. In Paul's imagery, if I can paraphrase the Apostle Paul from one of his letters, he says, to some we have the aroma of life and to others we smell like death. Same person, same good news. What determines how it smells to you and what it does for you is whether you trust Jesus or not. Jesus told a parable declaring himself God and the fulfillment of all of these promises of two kinds of men who chose to build a house. One was a foolish man and he built on sand. Another was a wise man and with much greater difficulty he built on the rock. And the storm swept upon both houses, and the first was ruined and destroyed. And Jesus said, that's the way it is with my teaching. What you do with what I'm telling you will determine whether you survive the oncoming storm or you have everything you thought was yours taken from you. Peter understood this. I promised that I'd show you a hinge in his life. The same Peter who denied Jesus, remember that? With an oath, with cursing, with oaths to God, he promised not only that he wasn't with Jesus, but that he had never met him, and then went out into the darkness of the night while Jesus was on his trial on the way to crucifixion, and Peter wept with a broken heart. 
Let me show you what happened to Peter once the Holy Spirit came and empowered him, and once Peter truly understood who Jesus is. Acts chapter 4. Read this with me. This is Peter's preaching. Day of Pentecost, or shortly thereafter, uh, rather, in Acts chapter 4. Read with me, please. It says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you're unfamiliar with the story, Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 are going up to the temple at an hour of prayer. A man is crippled there from birth. Peter says, I don't have any money for you, but what I have I give you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. And that man went leaping into the temple to worship. And of course, an enormous crowd was gathered. And in Acts chapter 4, Peter tells them what happened and why it happened. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, where'd this guy come from? Whom God raised from the dead. You understand what a slam that is? We've all been waiting for Messiah. Good job, you killed him. We've been waiting all this time. You rejected him, but God raised him by the dead, by him, by Jesus. This man, this crippled man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in, what's it say? No one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Who is Jesus? Jesus is rejected by people. That's who Jesus is. The supposed experts looked at him. He was not what they were expecting. He was not what they wanted. It seems that the Pharisees in particular wanted a military deliverer to drive the Romans from their lands and lead them in successful theocratic battle, Jesus came preaching peace and reconciliation to all people, and he was rejected. He's not only rejected by people, more importantly, he is chosen and precious to God. This stone that was rejected by the builders, unworthy, unuseful, an imposter is chosen and precious to God, and because of that, Jesus is the Savior and the sure foundation of whoever believes in Him. Some will stake their life on Him and be saved. Others will stumble over His teaching and fall and be broken. That's the word picture. It's a picture of whether there will be salvation or judgment in response to Jesus. Several years ago, there was a movement that said they like Jesus, not the church. Remember that? You ever hear that? I like Jesus, not the church. A friend of mine who's actually a professor at a local Christian university really started reading the Gospels very carefully and listening just to the words of Jesus. And he went through what he, an educator, would call cognitive dissonance. He wasn't quite sure what to do with Jesus. 
Because Jesus is loving and merciful and peaceful and welcoming to sinners, a man who is characterized as a friend of the worst kind of people, but he is so clear on his identity that he doesn't want anyone in the world, poor or rich, oppressed or powerful, to miss that he is God and he is the one God sent. And it doesn't matter who you are, he can save you. And it also doesn't matter who you are, if you reject him, he won't. He will judge you instead. And as my professor friend read these, not unfamiliar, not hidden, when he started reading the words of Jesus laying out life and death so clearly in front of people, it was disorienting to him because he didn't realize it. He had filtered out the hard edges and listened only to the parts of Jesus that he found enormously comforting. But you need to know, Jesus is God. He is righteous and just and merciful and loving and good. He is all of those things at once. And he will always do what is right. He will never reject anyone who comes to him. He will not put to shame anyone who trusts him. But as the creator of life himself, as God in the flesh who died for sinners like me, he will absolutely hold people accountable for what they do with him. And Peter is telling you, you the builders, you who should have known better, you experts in our scriptures, God sent the cornerstone to save us and you rejected him. Now you stand at a crossroads deciding what you will do with the cornerstone, whether you will build your life on Jesus and his teaching or you will think you know better, as so many people do, and build on the sand of your own understanding. And you say, I thought you were going to talk to us about our identity. So far, this has all been about Jesus. Have you noticed it's been all about Jesus? It always is. It always should be. If you don't preach about Jesus, you should go back and rewrite your sermon. It really is the whole Scripture. But Peter's put the emphasis on Jesus because now, having explained to them from the Old Testament, Scriptures 700 and more possibly years earlier, now Peter, who's made two very quick references to his readers, is going to turn to them fully and explain to them who they are. And who they are and who we are, remember, y'all, not just you individually, Yes, you individually, because you are a Christian, because you are a disciple of Jesus, but there's something unique, special, and beautiful of the church gathered. You're not alone. Jesus died for you, but not for you alone. Look back in 1 Peter chapter 2 and watch Peter make the turn. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 again, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like, what's it saying? So what are we? Living stones. I don't know what that means. I need to keep reading. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a, what now? Spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then it's all about Jesus. Peter has said in the early part of this reading, he's given two clues about who we are, and in verse 9 he's going to develop them fully, and it is the best news I've ever given you. 
If you will hold on to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, for the rest of your life, you'll live a life that is pleasing to God. Now, I'm three generations in ministry and utterly allergic to hype. Because I've been in church. I mean, I didn't choose to go to church. They carried me in. And then when I was old enough sometimes to walk in under my own power, they still dragged me in. So I'm allergic to ministry hype. Here's what I mean. Pastors have made a cottage industry of telling people with every new book, with every new sermon, with every new idea they have, this will completely change your life. And the people are like, oh boy, I've changed my life three times this year already. (laughs) One of my heroes and mentors saying, stop changing their lives. They're tired. Let them live the life they have. So I'm allergic to hype, but 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 is such a foundational verse in the New Testament, and it is so filled with Old Testament references. Every picture in it is drawn from Peter's Bible, from the Hebrew Scriptures. Peter is going to tell them who they are. He's going to tell us who we are. So, who are we? First, we're a living house where God dwells. The house is built on the living stone that is Jesus, but verse 6 says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. We are the very possession and place of God. This is huge. There is no sacred space anymore. You don't need to go to a particular location where God can be found and only there. You are sacred space. We collectively are sacred space. We, the church, the congregation, the people who belong to God, in the plural, we belong to God and we are being built up as a house where God dwells. Number two, we are also a priesthood. In other words, we stand close to God. We've been chosen by God. We are capable now of having communion with God and giving God sacrifices that He will find acceptable and He will delight in. The concept of the priesthood is a very important religious concept. And just so you know, I'm not a priest, I'm a pastor, and there's a vast difference. A priest stands between God and people and represents God to people and people to God. He's an intermediary. Because I grew up in Mexico and because I was a pastor and a missionary in Mexico, sometimes very sincere and devout Catholic people who had just met me didn't know what to make of me. So they would do things that I found awkward and eventually they found embarrassing, like grab my hand and kiss my ring. Why are they doing that? They're treating me as a priest. Peter is saying to these impoverished, scattered, persecuted Christians, verse 5, you are being built up to be a holy priesthood. Who? All of you. We are a priesthood to worship God and to represent Him to the world. Here's verse 9. Finally, I'm getting to it. Listen, if you're a disciple of Jesus, this is true of you. We, this assembly of God, this local church, this congregation on this little corner, this is who we are. But you, 
plural, you collectively, y'all, if it helps you. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his what? Own possession. You know how good that is? You belong to him. And he treasures you. He loves you. So much so that he sent his son to die for you. And then the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to give you new life. And if you remember the day you turned from your sin and from yourself, stop trying to follow the rules, realizing that you had broken God's laws already and your conscience told you so every day and you knew in your heart you weren't measuring up and finally you did the only wise, humble thing you could do and gave up on yourself and started trusting Jesus, maybe you felt as I did there weren't Maybe emotions like there were in your case, there were in mine, the emotions don't matter, but you suddenly had a practical reality experience that life was new and that you were new. And I've been figuring that newness out for over 40 years now from the time that Jesus first came and saved me. And the reason is all here. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Listen to verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are what? God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What difference does this make? Listen to this, and I'm done because this is where the rubber meets the road. This is theology lived out. This is why I say that if you take 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to heart, and you understand that you, through no merit and no standing of your own, were chosen by God, you were not only a priest, but a royal priest. In other words, you've been brought into his kingdom. The king is now your father. You are like a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God. You're not in charge. Your father, the loyal, loving, strong, all-wise, all-knowing king, he's in charge, but he is your father by choice, by adoption. His only begotten son died for you. Because all of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the unity of Trinitarian operations, to use a very technical term, chose together, God, Father, Son, and Spirit chose to save you. And the Father sent the Son, and the Son died in your place, and the Holy Spirit gave you the new life of Jesus and is with you now every day until the end of the age, until you come fully into your inheritance. That's why it says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What difference does it make? Number one, Jesus is the one. No one else is coming and no one else can save. That is very narrow. It is deemed very intolerant. It is deemed in some quarters of the United States and in much of Europe, hateful speech. But it is the testimony of Jesus himself. And all of the apostles were willing to die for it. All of the apostles who once ran in fear, protecting their own lives... Peter, who denied Jesus after meeting Jesus after the resurrection and having 
the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter himself chose to die rather than to deny Jesus again. The message is that important. Number two, this means that God chose us, that God loves us, that God delights in us, that God accepts us. See, here's why this matters. Let me move from preaching to pastoral counseling. Because all biblical preaching in a form is a sense of counsel, of teaching. All of those verbs there, chose, love, delight, accept, those are often not true of yourself toward yourself. There's things about you that you didn't choose. There's things about you that not only do you not love, you hate. There are things about yourself, things in your memory, things in your identity, things in your character, things in your behavior that you find no delight in. And consequently, you live constantly rejecting yourself rather than accepting yourself. How does God do it? How can He say that we are a chosen race, kingly priests, a holy nation, a group of people for his own possession. Does he overlook it all? Is he like a parent watching a failing, struggling, not particularly bright child, shrugging his shoulders, saying, well, he's mine, I'll love him anyway? Is that kind of father God is? No. God chose you and loves you and accepts you. God chose us. God loves us. God delights in us. God accepts in us. This is true and secure because of who Jesus is. By God's mercy, God sees us the way he sees his son. This is why the phrase, in Christ, keeps popping up all across the New Testament. It's not you plus Jesus. That's still a lousy deal. You'll mess it up. It's you in Christ. It is, as Jesus said, the Father and the Son coming and dwelling with you. It is the Father saying that you are accepted and loved and more precious to Him than you have ever been to yourself, not because of the way you behave and what you are right now, but because of Jesus, of who Jesus always has been. By God's mercy, we are seen as Jesus is. That's your standing. It's Christ, not you. And this is so undertaught and underappreciated. I heard a pastor who knows better say years ago, it's a long time ago, no sense mentioning his name because we all say dumb things. You've heard plenty from me. But he explained the good news that I'm preaching to you as a mulligan. And if you don't know what a mulligan is, it's a golfing term where you shank a shot and you say, can I have a mulligan? And they pretend that it never happened. And he said that the love and the forgiveness of Christ gave you a mulligan. No, it doesn't. You'll mess that shot up too. You'll slice it and hook it. You'll go in the water, the sand, and the trees. You'll break windshields in the parking lot. You will continually be messing it up. That's why what would Jesus do is a good question, but a very limited question. The announcement of the gospel is not what Jesus would do, but the glorious announcement of what he's already done. 
and how He accepts you and loves you and delights in you. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit do all of that because you are in Him. You're invited into the fellowship, the warmth, and the love, and the beauty, and the perfection of God Himself through the love of the Father, the death of the Son, and the fellowship and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. That's who you are. And if you can hold on to that, and you won't, because you'll forget. Because I forget. This is a fellow struggler talking to you this morning, not a subject matter expert. If you go to my office, more often than not, you can find a list of Scripture that details from the New Testament who we are in Christ. I've been reading it, memorizing it, teaching it, comforting myself with it for over 25 years. Because just like you, I'm filled with doubt. I often sin. I routinely fail. I'm always coming up short. Jesus never has and never will do any of that. That's who we are. What else? You need to remember, Christian, that Jesus is still rejected, so we should expect no better. If the cornerstone has been rejected, how might they treat the living stones that are being built up into a household for God? One of the curious things in American Christianity is that somehow we have come to the conviction that they should treat us better than they treated Jesus. That was a dumb idea. They killed him. You think a little name-calling is all that bad? I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm being a little funny, but I'm, I'm not being unfair and I'm not being unbiblical. You read the book of Hebrews, which is all about Jesus and the priesthood of Jesus, Toward the end, the author of the letter of Hebrews says, you haven't resisted sin to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, your holiness hasn't killed you yet. Hang in there. Have some courage. Because according to verse 9, you are chosen and loved and holy and you belong to God because, number four, we are God's people now, but we remain here to proclaim Him. Verse 9 you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of who? Of him, not you. <laughs> I'm not trying to be hard on you. I'm just trying to offer an antidote and a corrective. Half of Christian ministry is building a personal brand now. And it's never been about our brand your brand will become laughable in just a few years. You ever seen these old commercials? Things that we thought were so cool in the 70s and 80s, laugh out loud funny now. And the coolest, hottest, hippest thing right now, somebody will be laughing about it probably in two weeks, not two years, because the internet moves everything faster. You are chosen and loved and accepted and belong to God, not to tell people about yourself, but to proclaim Him, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are who? God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All of this church is by God's mercy. You haven't earned any of it. It was all a gift to you. 
It was all a merciful gift offered on the cross of Calvary so that whoever will believe in him will be saved and stand firm on the cornerstone that will not be broken and cannot be moved. This is who we are. Loved, accepted, called, acceptable to God, in worship to God, all to represent Him. So whatever you're going through, take heart. This is who you are. Let's pray together. Again, I see people I haven't met. Are you quite sure this is all true of you? Did you come to church because you thought it would help you do better? Thank you for that. I'm grateful for that. But I'm just telling you clearly, it won't be enough. You can't do better. You can't do well enough to save yourself. Whatever improvements you make, they will be insufficient to save you. Jesus alone can do that. He died to save you. My invitation to you, will you please trust Him? Will you give up on building on the sandy foundation of your own understanding? Trust Him. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Save me. I'm going to stake my life on you and the fact that you've told me the truth. And He will save you. Did it for me. He's did it for untold millions of people in every language known to mankind for 2,000 years now. Jesus has been saving anyone and everyone who trusts Him. If you don't know Him, call out to Him right now in prayer. Turn yourself in to Him. Turn yourself over to Him and He will save you. And dear Christian, did you know how loved you are? How accepted? How beloved? That the dark spots and the horrible memories of the evil that others have done to you and the wickedness of your own sins, that's all been covered by the righteousness of Jesus. God, by mercy, no longer sees that. He sees you as he sees his own son, righteous, just, holy, loved, acceptable, beloved. That's who you are. Hold on to it and go out into this world to represent it. Jesus, thank you for loving us this way. Help us represent you well. Help us hold on by your grace to the identity you've given us. Forgive us for ever trying to craft a name and an an identity of our own. You have done so much better. You are so much better. You're simply the best. Help us to love you and trust you and follow you wherever you may lead. And in this present darkness to proclaim your goodness that others may come into the light that we now enjoy. In Jesus' name and God's people together said Amen. Folks I love you. I look forward to seeing a whole bunch of you later this afternoon in about seven hours at five o'clock you're going to see things that we've been planning for two years. That invitation you received to the banquet, we made that two years ago. But then there were some troubles along the way. I don't know if you heard. And we were delayed. But tonight, for all of you who serve this church, who proclaim the goodness and the excellency of God into the world, we're going to serve and celebrate and thank you. God bless you. Hope to see you then.